I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello everyone, Rob here. Very quickly, just to let you know that this episode was recorded last week before the passing of Her Majesty the Queen. Just thought I'd let you know, just in case any of the stuff we say sounds a little bit out of context. Maybe. Anyway, there you go. That's all you need to know. But let's get on with today's bonus episode of the Eurotrip. This is the Eurotrip. When you aren't listening, you can find us on social media. We're at Eurotrip Podcast. Warming you up for the Eurovision Song Contest. I know it's not a Wednesday, but me and Rob are back with a brand new episode of the Eurotrip. It is the first bonus episode of the 2023 Eurovision season. Rob, it's great to be back. It is brilliant to be back. I feel like there should be some sort of klaxon there. The first bonus (laughs) of the 2023 Eurovision season. That's got to be, by the way, one of the first times we've said the 2023 Eurovision season on the podcast this year. It is. I need to get my muscle memory going. I'm going to say 2022. I know I'm going to make that mistake at some point, either today or over the next few months. It's not quite 2023 in my head. So forgive me if I make the mistake. Yeah, 2022 is just that little bit easier to say, isn't it? 2022. So yeah, we'll have to get our heads around 2023. But as you said, here we are, our first bonus episode of the season. And we are starting with a biggie. This is something we teased on Wednesday's episode of The Contest and Me. Brilliant episode with Dave Goodman, by the way. If you haven't listened, do go back and do that. But today, we have a bonus episode with, and we promised 
This was a man with a very important job, a man with a really insightful look at everything the UK did at Eurovision in 2022. And I've realised I've given away that it's a man. <laughs> James, do you want to tell everyone who it is? It is Dan Shipton, who is a Eurovision creative director extraordinaire. I feel like I've bigged up his job title a bit, but I think he deserves it. Absolutely. So what do we mean by creative director? He is the man that makes the songs look like they do on the stage and a lot more besides that, to be honest with you. He is responsible for the whole look and on-screen presentation of a song at the contest. Should say he does a lot outside of Eurovision as well, of course. Has worked with some of the biggest music artists in the world on some of the biggest shows in the world all of which will come up in this interview. But I was lucky enough to talk to him, and let me tell you, he has some brilliant stories about his time working at Eurovision, and especially what he did this year with Sam Ryder and the United Kingdom at Eurovision 2022. As you can tell, we're being a bit vague and doing probably a very bad job at explaining what exactly he does. So thankfully, in Rob's conversation with Dan, he'll do a much better job of explaining how it all works, what he actually does in such a wide-ranging conversation. So we've got all that and more still to come. Don't forget, you can get in touch with us on social media. We're at Eurotrip Podcast. Yeah, we are back. As you said, James, the first bonus episode of Eurovision 2023, the 2023 season at least, here on the Eurotrip Podcast. If you're a regular listener, you will know that we are currently in the midst of our series, The Contest and Me. Just to give you a little heads up, we've got a few more weeks on The Contest and Me, and then by the time we get into October, we'll be back with regular episodes with a twist, with a little twist. That's, that's enough of a tease, isn't it, for what's to come in a few weeks' time? Oh, you little tease, yeah. I feel like I felt like you were going to give quite a lot away there, but I feel like you've left enough hanging for people to start stroking their chins and wonder, what on earth have they got planned? But uh, let us just say, it's something a bit different and something a bit special, but we're sure you're going to love it. Definitely. But to today then, and we've already said who we've got joining us on today's bonus episode, it's Dan Shipton, creative director extraordinaire, as you called him. <laughs> he is from Black Skull Creative. That's the name of his company that he set up with some other brilliant creatives with his partner as well. And they are responsible for effectively branding a performance or a tour or a show. Again, me and James are doing quite a bad job, or me in this instance doing quite a bad <laughs> job of explaining what he does. But thankfully, Dan does do a much better job of explaining exactly what he does. But importantly, James, he did that for the United Kingdom at Eurovision 2022. So that incredible stage, do you remember when we saw that for the first time? And, you know, we just went, what on earth is happening? Are the BBC actually trying really hard? And what sort of result could Sam Ryder get this year? Do you remember that moment? Dan Shipton, responsible for that. Yeah, not only that, but if you think back over the last six or seven years, some of the most iconic performances, some of the biggest props uh, you can remember from Eurovision, because as you'll find out, Dan loves a big prop. Some of the biggest props and some of the most memorable performances from Eurovision over the last six or seven years, him and the rest of his team are responsible for. You'll find out from his first performance back in 2015, all the way through to, what is it, seven, eight or nine performances he was responsible for earlier this year. He is the man 
with the brains who brought so much creative design to the Eurovision stage. And you're going to hear all about them. Yeah, he was responsible for UK acts from 2015 to 2018. So that means that iconic mirror with Lucy Jones, that was Dan. Also, remember the flaming letters from Cyprus in 2021? That was Dan. Victoria on a massive mound in 2021? That was Dan. And then this year, the UK with Sam and Spaceman, but also Rosalyn, her viral hit. Dan did that along with his creative partner, Marvin Dietman. And Marvin Dietman's another name that will come up a lot in this conversation. Another creative director who I'm sure you will know has done many, many Eurovision songs down the years. I promised before, about one minute ago, I said he loves a big prop. Every single performance you mentioned there, I was counting, I was remembering in my head, every single one of those had a massive prop. <laughs> and I do ask Dan later on in the chat, to pick out some of his favourite props from down the years. So we will have that conversation. But shall we do it? Let's get into it. And we would love, of course, to hear your thoughts on everything that Dan is about to discuss. So do get in touch with us on Twitter and Instagram. We are at Eurotrip Podcast. And we're on the email as well. Hello at EurotripPodcast.com. Because James, we are in for a treat. Yeah, you certainly are. So let's get to it, shall we? This is what happened when Rob sat down with Dan Shipton. This is the Euro Trip. Dan, it's brilliant to, to have you on the podcast. You are a creative director. So let's kick off with that. What is a creative director? What does the role involve? And then going on to how do you get into that? You know, is that something you've always wanted to do? I mean, a creative director as a title is not one of my favourites. I feel like everyone these days calls themselves creative directors. So I probably prefer show designer or show maker or show architect or something along those lines. But essentially what I do is put on shows for a living. And that could mean like full tours for artists. It could mean working with pop stars or brands. It could be TV shows. There's so many guises that um, my kind of creative world fits within. Um, but ultimately, what people want me to do is come in and come up with an idea that's going to wow people and then make that idea happen and lead the team through. So we're looking at all areas of creativity that make a show up. So I'll be giving up creating an idea and then giving an opinion that is based on set design and costume design and props and um, how the music could work and what the movement's going to be like and how it all kind of comes together to make something really stunning and um, hopefully kind of one of a kind. And that encompasses so much. So the big question, I guess, is are you an organised person, Dan, or is it all in your head? It can't surely all be in your head because there is so much to consider there. Yes, I am a very organised pers person. And um, I think, you know, for years I struggled with this kind of idea of what creativity meant and how different people kind of transcribed that and actually for me um, coming up with the idea is just the first step in the process actually the way I translate my creativity is by ultimately planning every detail of that pathway to get us to the end result and for me by being organized and being so astute with every beat of the performance that I know inside out, it allows me and it allows the team to create something which is really structured and really, um, you know, it's got a definite vision. Whereas, you know, it's very easy to go, oh, I just want someone to stand in a pool of water and then fountains to come around and, and, and all this stuff. But actually, if you don't know how to deliver that and you don't have the ability to back that up, 
then I feel like, what are you doing? It's it's there's there's you know there's an idea and then there's an end result, but there's a whole load of product you know process in between that, which is actually probably the key bit. Later on, it'd be amazing to chat about some of those crazier ideas like you said that especially when it comes to Eurovision people have come to you with and and you've had to then try and translate that and make that happen as part of of the performance but going back how did you get to to where you are now you know obviously you're at school I don't know what you do next how do how do you make that transition from someone who potentially has always had an interest in the in the pop and the entertainment industry to then going on to doing what you do I don't think there's a there's definite route into it. I think everyone comes into my role from all sorts of directions. Um, I my personal route was um, training um, as a stage manager and technical theatre, um, and so that was um, a three year long degree course where I kind of learnt a bit of every department in the theatre, um, and so that kind of gave me the ability to be jack of all trades but master of none in many ways but my creativity and my um organizational side which i you know focusing on the stage manager bit that really kind of brought all that together for me so that's that's kind of set stood me in really good ground for now as a creative director being able to talk to all those departments have meaningful conversations understanding enough about their process that they um i can appreciate their process and i can go on that process with them and their journey but also they can't pull the wool over my eyes because you know people love to say no if it's too difficult and actually i feel like a big part of my job is pushing the team to create something that may have not been done before and that means that it can be quite tough and it can be challenging and you are asking people to go on a journey with you just like not jumping ahead to talking about Sam, but, you know, to be able to persuade the team in Turin that that monster of the set piece was something that could be set in time and that was physically possible and it didn't defy the laws of gravity and all of those things. That was a very long technical process um, of drawings, of working out um, LED structure and working with all of my technical team to be able to then persuade the technical team in Turin that we wanted that and it was going to work and obviously we did and and it paid off. So excited to chat to you about everything to do with Sam and Spaceman and and everything that you did with the BBC at Eurovision in 2022 and of course the other countries that you work with in, in 2022 as well. Your history with Eurovision goes back much further ago than that. Before we get to Eurovision, of course, which I know is why a lot of people listening to this, they want to find out all about your work on Eurovision. But just talk us through some of the other massive names that you've worked with previously, still obviously are working with now and and the great projects that you've had the opportunity to to be part of and to, to work on. I should probably say that um, I don't do this alone. Um, I own a company with four amazing business, three other amazing business partners um, called Black Skull Creative. And Paul Ross um, and Jay are crucial to everything that we do. And as a team, that's allowed us to kind of rethink bigger than one person's kind of ability. Um, And also with all our different skill bases, um, our backgrounds and our kind of um, community, we've been able to kind of span way more than what we thought we were going to do when we started, which we thought we were going to do performances for people on telly. Um, and ultimately, we now, like I say, work across brands. We work across live experiences. We work across arenas and stadiums and all sorts of stuff. So I think that has been the key to unlocking some of those great names that you're talking about. So, you know, we we, we work with pop stars. So, you know, um, in the past, we've worked with anyone from... 
Dua Lipa to Kanye to Little Mix to um, Jess Glynn. I don't know. There's lots in there. And we, you know, we also then work internationally with pop stars. We, we're creative director for an artist called Marco Mangoni in Italy, who also obviously has a Eurovision connection, but he's now massive over there. Um, and then we do work also in America. So there's kind of, and, you know, and also China, blah, blah, blah. There's also other things like, you know, Ross and I originally met um, on London 2012 um, ceremonies. Um, and that was the, the first kind of spark of a, um, a friendship that turned into us being married. But that also create that creative connection became Black Skull. And when we met Jay and then we've met Paul subsequently, that's also become more of that. Um, because of that, we work on stadium stuff. So, you know, we've just done Westlife, Westlife Stadium Tour, but then we also work in China and we've done a massive stadium show for Hunan TV. And oh, I don't know, this. Um, <laughs> ask me anything. I, I hate talking about who we work with because I always get, I always forget everyone and offend people. So you can just ask me if you've got any specifics on that one, maybe. <laughs> you've got you've just got so many. That's the thing. There's so many people you can list off. So many exciting things that you're doing. How difficult is it to to fit it all in? You mentioned, obviously, there's not just yourself. There is the team, of course. How difficult is it to, to I guess, work across multiple projects at, at any one time? I think it's really hard, but I also think it's what we thrive on. And I think there's that old adage of, you know, give a job to a busy person and they'll get it done doubly as fast. And I definitely agree with that. I think sometimes I'd love more time. And we all say this, that we'd love more time for development and for creative research. And but we have, an um, you know, an amazing um, producer that works with us that um, called James, who's able to take our ideas and really kind of get into that depth of re research for us and then bring that forward to allow us to kind of grow the idea. Um, and that's something that we've been put in place to allow us to be able to take on more projects. And again, as a team, it's not all on one person's shoulders. So being able to spread the load, as it were, and kind of work across all of it. Um, and, and, you know, working as a team is such a strong method because while one person might not be feeling creative that particular moment, usually at least two of the, the four of us or the five of us are. So it's, you know, it swings and roundabouts. I don't know. I just have such a passion for what we do and I absolutely love it. So I don't know. It's just like playing for a living, right? I don't know. Why, why, why wouldn't you want to do more of that? Yeah, it sounds like, honestly, the most exciting job, the things that you, the things that you get to do. I mentioned that you having to work on multiple projects at once, Shortly, we'll talk about 2021, when I know you worked on seven different countries. I think, I think. it was nine. Was it seven? Nine? And then we advised on two more. So nine in total. And then last year, I think it was six, seven, six. I can't remember. There was me thinking that seven was a big number, but actually it turned out the real number from 2021 was <laughs> even bigger than that. Dan, Dan, going back to the beginning, you and Eurovision. Have you always been a Eurovision fan? Is Eurovision something you've always watched? Is Eurovision something you enjoy? Yes. Definitely. Eurovision for me, I could just thinking about my first memory of Eurovision. I don't know if it is my first memory. I know that me and me and my best mate Kev always watched Eurovision together from when we were kids. And I've known Kev since I was seven. So I would say it probably goes back then. I've got a really clear memory of um Katrina and the Waves winning and um then Tony Blair coming into power the next day. For me, that was a moment. Um and then what I would say is that. Uh, up until um, really being involved in the, the way that we are, it was more about parties and it was more about um, a passion for it. But I couldn't have listed off what, you know, um, what Scandal, you know, what Sweden did in like 1972. I'm not that kind of a fan. 
but now having worked on it and essentially got that kind of buzz for it I now feel like there's a I, you know I'm so um, into that kind of mindset and I have a lot more knowledge and you generally build that knowledge and I think my appreciation for every single person that creates those shows and for what we do and the level of kind of productivity that we all work at is just so high and I think it's easy for us in the past in the UK to have laughed at the Eurovision um, and we know you know and that narrative has played out and hopefully it's changed or changed a lot now that we're in a position that we've been in um, recently. You've done a brilliant job there of bringing it back to your very first memory. You mentioned back in 1997, the UK's last win at Eurovision, of course. But your involvement with Eurovision, personally, does that go back to 2015? I think I looked back, was it the UK, 2015, an electro velvet? Tell us more about how that happened. Yes, it was. And um, I know it wasn't our proudest moment as a country for Eurovision, so I'm not, you know, it is what it is. But for me, it obviously sparked a buzz and a love of it. So I, you know, it did me proud. It did me well. And it's kind of kept me on that journey and got me here today. So I don't regret it in any long set, in any stretch of the word. But yes, I got into that um, namely because I was, I'd been working with Guy Freeman a lot um, on um, other projects. And he thought that, he wanted to bring a team together and we'd work to get well together and he liked the creative approach that I had so invited me to be part of the team and it was at that point it was would you like to come on board to do the main Eurovision and also um, do the creative for Eurovision 60 um, which was the 60th birthday thing so for me you know being able to create performances for Lorene and Emily DeForest was like an amazing thing as a fan that's watched those people and you know sat back it was a really nice spin on it um and then obviously going in and having that you know that first experience of the eurovision world and the bubble and what it means to take an act to eurovision was like quite a crucifixion by fire in many ways um and i feel like our process of how we uh, what we do now is so far advanced from what we did that year but it was amazing and um that continued you know i did that year i did i think i did the next three years or four years um, had a little hiatus, um, pandemic in the way, and then kind of come back now. You mentioned Guy Freeman there. For anyone that doesn't know, Guy was the, the UK's head of the delegation for a long time at, at the Eurovision Song Contest, of course, no longer part of the, the Eurovision team. But you mentioned there that you did 2015 and then you did 16, 17, 18, took a break for the UK, then came back, of course. But you you mentioned that how things had changed within the BBC team and and how what you did then obviously very different to what you did say this year even in 2022. What was that like? Obviously working with different people, but just overseeing, I guess, that transition. Because I think as a fan from the outside looking in, it, it seems that a lot of things have changed with the BBC and their approach to the contest. Those first block of four years were the Guy Freeman years, as it were. We did that as a team, Guy, Helen, myself um, and some others. And that was great. But we were all in many ways, we, we the, the the feeling of wanting to win has always been there. The, the, that's been a genuinely true thing. But obviously, there's... Um, a whole narrative with the nation there's a whole narrative with the record labels there's a whole narrative with budgets that all adds into that and they all play key parts in how we're perceived and also how we are how it plays out on the night essentially so 
I think cutting my teeth in those years was amazing. You know, don't forget in that time we did Lucy and we also did Suri, both of which were, I think, really deserved um, kind of call outs, particularly Lucy was just insane. And, you know, if you talk to many of the people at Eurovision, they all say that Lucy should have won that year. So, you know, obviously Portugal was a completely, you know, a worthy winner. Don't get me wrong, I'm not devaluing that. But at the same time, I think from what, you know, in internally that creative that centred around the song really did hit home for a lot of people on the Eurovision side, which was amazing. So it felt like we were sort of on the right track, but just not getting all the components in the right places, I guess. So obviously I didn't go to Israel and do um, that. And I and I watched Israel from home and got really drunk and it was really fun. Um, then we had a little pandemic in the middle. Um, but during that time, Marvin Dietzman and I um, really connected a lot. And Marvin, um, obviously everyone doesn't know, he won with Conchita um, and he's been on the internal team um, from an EBU side and from a show maker side for all of that time that I was doing the creatives from the BBC side. So we'd started working together, but it was very much a kind of like country and contest kind of relationship. But we very much appreciated our work and our, and our friendship kind of grew. During that time in the pandemic and when the BBC weren't working with me, I was like, well, do you know what? That doesn't mean I want to give up my Eurovision dreams, personal Eurovision dreams. So speaking to Marvin, I was like, right, come on, let's let's do something. And, and Marvin, when it went to um, Rotterdam, they, they approached the show in, in much more of a kind of localised manner. So bringing people on um, from the international kind of circuit didn't really work for them. Um, and so Marvin was at a loose end and he was like, come on, why don't we just go and contact a load of countries and see if they need creatives? Um, and actually you put one feeler out and it turns into nine. That's a hilarious thing, right? So, you know, it was quite a whirlwind for us because we, because so many people needed the support and, to be able to connect with a, with a creative person like Marvin that brings a whole different approach to the way I approach things and we have different skills but very similar skills then also mixing in the fact that that was the year that live on tape started and we had to you know record um stuff and you know and so there was lots of different angles that kind of really meant that we started to understand a lot more about process and scenarios that you could really harness and techniques to really harness that would allow a country to shine more so in that time obviously I know Andrew Cartmel really well and I knew Lee Smithhurst really well and they were um, leading the the UK team at that point but it wasn't going extremely well for as we all know and so we had a really great heart-to-heart -heart conversation um, in in um, Rotterdam which was Hey guys, look, I've learned shitload of stuff. When does that happen? Is that after the final? When does that take place? No, no, no. That happens in, during the semi-finals, not around the semi-finals. Maybe it was on the Friday, not sure, but it was sometime around that. And it was, you know, you have so much time to kill in that bloody um delegation bubble and you're chatting to everyone. And by that point, we'd rehearsed our nine countries, so it was like fine. Yeah, just a, a really good conversation with um, Andrew and, and particularly Lee and just kind of saying, look, you know, um, we've done nine countries now. We've learned so much and we our approach. To, and I said, look, I know what you do as the BBC because I've been there and I've done it and we're not doing enough. And Lee could see 
that and we were able to get into the very you know after the contest we got into the very granular detail of all of the things that we should be doing and maximizing to allow us to get to close to a good position in the leaderboard at that point the beauty from my point of view was i guess it wasn't um because i would had this this kind of creative relationship formed with marvin and all of these other countries were on the table again for the following year i knew my eurovision journey was continuing anyway and i dreamed of working on the bbc again and i wanted to win or do well for our, my own country but at the same time i was secure that i was going to be there so i felt very comfortable by having a conversation with them and then also a subsequent conversation with rachel ashdown from the bbc about just how you know open you know how how we could really harness this then at the same time, they were also thinking that they really wanted to take it seriously. And there was an appetite with the 100th year of the um, centenary year for the BBC coming up that genuinely we really wanted to do well. So a combination of approaching the creative in a different way, those guys really wanting and feeling the proper desire to make change. Um, and then this kind of shift in the mindset from the whole of the BBC about actually taking it really seriously meant that you know, we started, they they brought Ben from Tap on board and the musical route became a thing. They invested more in the creative side. So we were able to harness a lot of the stuff that we were already doing um, for other countries. And then this kind of shift in the narrative as soon as Sam was there with positivity and let's change the view of the whole of the UK. And then you add Scott Mills into that and everything that he did for it and Rylan and just this general like come on guys let's pull our socks up and make a big deal and look where we got to so there was the definite shift yeah absolutely 2022 we need to go in depth but there are a few questions I wanted to to ask you about one is at what stage does that journey begin for you working with a country working with a delegation you mentioned how in 2021 you wanted to get back into Eurovision you and Marvin contacted some countries off your own back at that point do they have their song where where are they at in their process and and at what stage do you come in i suppose the autumn is where we made probably the, yeah september october time we put out the feelers but no one is really thinking that hard about it and some people are but some people aren't and you, and really we were um i suppose by the end of the year we 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 are getting we're kind of committing to our countries obviously it varies but those there we've at least had initial discussions not about they haven't got a song maybe and they haven't got the thing but they, we know that they're committing to us as a creative team um and then um really it's kind of after christmas january time where you start to hear things for the first time and you start to get a sense of what might be coming through and then you know that that build-up obviously leads to us submitting the you know hitting the deadline for the ebu of us submitting our first creative so it's kind of like that first quarter of the year where things really kind of start to kind of heat up you mentioned budgets and i think this is really interesting do the budgets and i imagine they do vary country to country is everyone kind of working in the same ballpark how do they all stack up because what you were saying and this is not these words have not come out of your mouth. This is me inferring this, but it sounds like the ballpark you were working in for the BBC in 2022, for example, was different to the ballpark you were working in with the BBC when you worked with them 15, 16, 17, 18, for example. 
Yeah, and I think um, budgets vary genuinely from country to country. Record label investment varies as well. Big budgets allow you to think completely freely, but then also it kind of just depends. Like sometimes you need the budget, sometimes you don't need the budget. I don't know. Like it's not, it, we're not beholden to it, but it, but what is beautiful is if you're in a situation where you don't have to worry about the budget, I would say. There is not a time in my creative career where budgets haven't been an important deciding factor in how we approach the creative direction of a, of a performance. And now that goes across every area. You know, when we're designing an arena tour, we're thinking about the budget. When we're thinking of a TV performance, Eurovision or not, it's always where what kind of bracket do we need to sit in? And then, you know, then you then actually take the song and you take the artist and sometimes you just want a spotlight and an artist and it's obviously kind of free in a way but then sometimes you need a lot more so it just it's kind of it is one of those things that is a an important factor but investment in us being able to do a you know a camera script and a pre-visualization of lighting and an investment of us being able to do very detailed storyboards very detailed drawings, very detailed planning, a lot of rehearsing, all of that stuff that you wouldn't necessarily see on camera in terms of a thing on stage, all feeds into the most important thing on stage, which is an artist, how it's been translated to the TV audience that are ultimately going to be voting for half those votes. Well, and even the people, even the, the judges are voting via a TV link. So quite an important thing how the lighting is going to look even though the lighting rig is free you you have to know what you're going to do with it you know all of that level of detail um is something that we were able to do for the bbc this year and i could play our previs next to our performance and they are pretty smack on just how much of a game changer is the bbc now having that record label investment in terms of what you can do with it obviously you can only talk about the work that you do but obviously when it was that first batch of time that you worked with the BBC there wasn't that record label investment and then going forward previously we've had BMG and now TAP how much of a game changer is that in terms of what it allows you to do you've mentioned budget is budget the main thing I was going to say budget isn't necessarily the main thing I think it's actually about belief so that that's a key difference and if that manifests itself in money fine but at the same time actually with Mitch from Parlophone this year there was no oh, it's just Eurovision. There was no kind of like sniggering behind your back when you suggested something. There was an absolute commitment and belief in their artist, in the vision, in the 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 dream of being top five or top 10, left-hand side of the board, whatever you want to say. But, and also the belief that Eurovision is actually a great place to launch the career of a new artist. Um, so that in itself, I think is something that I'd never experienced from um, a UK label before. Certainly I'd experienced it when working with Panic Records, with Cyprus, for example, they have a real belief. That shift and the, um, that shift in mindset of the label that matched the shift in mindset of the BBC was just so fantastic um, for the energies surrounding Sam and the project. So yeah, I, I think, you know, it does obviously, yes, that, that manifests itself self in so many things but obviously yes budget is one of those things because it ultimately they invest money but then at the same time it's the investment of time and, and the creative energy within the label to put 
you know, the effort into getting a promo tour out there, getting Sam to meet people, working with an artist that, you know, wants to spread that positive message and making sure that it's amplified in all the socials, you know, all of that thing that I don't, I'm not a part of, but I pre, like really appreciate drives um, notoriety towards that final performance. Dan, it feels like the natural place here is to talk about 2022. We're going to go one year back first, though. We're going to talk about 2021 because you've already mentioned that was the year that you had that heart to heart with with Lee and with Andrew. And that's how everything that happened this year began, or at least, you know, at least started. 2021, we've already mentioned you were working with nine countries. You were creative director for seven. You're revising another two. What was the 2021 process like? Because as you've said, live on tape is now a thing. You've been away from Eurovision for, for a few years. How much has changed in that time? Um, 21 was pretty mental. There was a lot of um, COVID stuff around it as well, which made it even more mental. So I think um, it was pretty magic, really. You know, connecting with Marvin, being able to work with various countries that all had such different cultural backgrounds, different types of artists and all that stuff was a beautiful thing. Getting on a plane again and going to every single country and rehearsing people was amazing. Connecting with all these people at different viewpoints and understanding that different countries really see things differently was also quite eye-opening and help and has and therefore informed 2022 and probably 23. Again, being with Marvin and Marvin's understanding of the internal process was also fascinating. And then also Marvin and I connecting and working out our process. So that it was like the most brilliant year, live on tape, obviously a thing, going to Bulgaria and shooting that. Um, shooting, I think we had... Again, I think we might have had nine countries or at least eight countries. The countries that I've got down for you in 2021, feel free to add to some of these. I've got Spain, yes? Yeah, uh, yes. Estonia? Mm-hmm. Czech Republic? Yeah. Cyprus? Yeah. Croatia? Yeah. Bulgaria? Yeah. And Austria are the countries that I've got. Yeah, and then we also um, helped with Moldova. What did Greece do that year? Greece was the the green screen. Stephanie. Oh yeah, Greece. Yeah. How could you forget? So, <laughs> again, uh, because of um, Marvin's connection with the creative guys from um, from that side of the world, it just meant that with the green screen difficulties, they wanted a bit of technical support, and um, also um, that kind of flowed into Moldova because it was just a fun one to do. So it wasn't like we were, we, I mean, neither of us could ever claim any responsibility for the creative, but we could definitely say that we were there to support and, and in any way that we could. Before we talk about the ultimate prop, which is Sam's prop, of course, I, I feel like calling it a prop is underselling it. I'm not going to call it a prop. It's, 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 <laughs> I far, do too. it's, for, it's far more than that. <laughs> but Looking at the previous countries you've worked with, Dan, you love a prop going back. I mean, going back to uh, going back to Electro Velvet with the massive set of stairs, I seem to remember. There's Lucy Jones, of course, with that incredible mirror, which was obviously so integral to that performance. Have you got a favourite prop? If we take Sam out of the mix, I would go for 100 million percent the, the shell that we made for Lucy. 100 percent. I think... That for me was, uh, you know, aside from 
just Eurovision performances. For me, that performance was a, a defining moment for me as a creative generally. Um, so yeah, that. Um, I do love a prop. I think that it's not as so much I love a prop. My approach um, and Marvin's approach and, you know, is all about redefining the Eurovision stage. And I've talked about it before elsewhere, but ultimately if you are given the same tools as every other, whatever it is, 40 countries, how do you own that space? How do you make it different? Um, how do you make your performance stand out for an audience that is saturated by all the other performances? And ultimately how can that support your artist to be in a good position on the leaderboard? So what you'll see with all of those performances is the general starting point of let's turn every single thing off at the Eurovision and start again um, and try and redefine the space. Um, and, you know, I think I'm not the first to have done that, I, you know, and I won't be the last, but it's definitely a really good starting point because you can create your, I'm there to create a world around the artist that feels unique and so, yeah, a prop is a great way of doing that. It's just another tool in the arsenal of lighting and screen content and whatever, you know, special effects or whatever that we have available to us at the Eurovision. So, yeah. Let's talk about Sam's prop. Let's talk about Sam. Let's talk about 2022, because I know that everyone listening to this is going to be screaming, going, please, please ask Dan all about 2022 and Sam. So the start of that journey, we've already heard, goes way back to, to Rotterdam in 2021. So the, the Friday night or the semi-final night, whenever it was, maybe Thursday, maybe Friday. We move forward. How do things progress from there? Because I know that Sam was heavily involved or his thoughts, at least, will have informed everything that you you did with 2022. So So what happens next? Is it when Sam comes on board that you go forward with a uh, another idea or have you already started to form your idea of, of what 2022 is going to look like first thing that has to come is the inspiration and the inspiration has to be the song ultimately we couldn't do anything until that was in place we sit down and listen to it and i mean i i literally played it in the office and i said to ross my husband and also one of the co-owners of black skull i was like we're going to do really well and he was like, oh, you say this every year. And I was like, no, we are really going to do well. And I kind of felt, and I'm not just saying this, I genuinely said it from the moment I heard it the first time. I was like, it felt really British, but not in your face. It felt really clever. It, his vocal was incredible. It just felt different. It felt standout. And it truly, truly excited me. And we all jumped on a call and me at that point it was me and Marvin and also a guy called Pete Abbott who works with Ben from TAP and is another creative director and we just chatted about what space man could mean to us and also what that British heritage could mean and how we could translate that to the Eurovision stage without being you know, without putting people off you know like we don't want to put a Union Jack anywhere do you know what I mean? As you saw from Sam's subsequent performance on the Queen's Jubilee, he's a rock star. And we could have done the whole big light thing and the whole riser thing and really referenced our heritage from Elton and from Freddie and from Bowie, which would have been those big light up risers. 
But ultimately, as I pointed out, or we all pointed out, Manskin had done it just the year before. And so that was like the best thing ever because it was like, great, the obvious thing that you would do with this type of song is not available to us. How are we going to redefine it? Then we started talking about, okay, turn everything off. How do we make this analog using that word really importantly because we didn't want to use screen content in it and we gen we wanted it to be feel really about light and about um kind of actual things in the room how do you make an analog version of space on the eurovision stage that you have to set in no time at all that also feels fresh and modern and then we and also how do you own that world without seeing the rest of the Eurovision stage so we ultimately start we our first the first drawing which I have that I drew was a dome and it was it was a dome that almost looks like our thing our whatever you want to call it spaceship I don't want to call it that but some people have um but our structure but we started with the dome and the, the dome was the first thing that we presented to Sam and to the label and to the BBC and to Ben. At that point, we we kind of took everyone through this kind of route. It was like, you can't do the manskin thing. You've got to be British heritage. We need to be analog. We need to put Sam in a star world. How do we create stars? We, as British heritage references, Every one of those big performers use star filters in the camera. It's a really old fashioned, but very traditional way of amplifying light um, in camera. Um, and also how do we own this stage? And so we presented all of that stuff and everyone was like, yes, all of those references are great. We want to be, we understand about being in this world and we love the idea of being able to shoot through the structure and have Sam in a world and then we then needed to listen to Sam and, and Sam's references were love all of it, but I want to be Kanye. I want to be modern. I want to be futuristic. I, I want to be, I want to have my band with me. And also I want to be able to perform freely and I don't want to be feeling restricted. So we went back to the drawing board and by this point, Luckily, um, with the great relationship with the technical team at the Eurovision, I, I, we were able to have a, an initial conversation about practicalities of, of the space and interior design was going through a few developments of that phase. We were quite early on. So just, you know, understanding what we were going to be allowed to do and what we weren't going to be allowed to do. We, by that point, knew that we weren't going to have any aerial capabilities and you'd be able to fly anything. So how do you create a dome that stands up that can be divided into four and be rolled onto stage and all that kind of stuff? So at that point, I went back to the drawing board with the, in the drawing and I was and we realised we needed to divide it into four. Um, and we and Sam also wanted more straight lines in there. And we so we started to reformat that shape. Um, and I you know technically needed to be able to fold it down on itself um to be able to get it through the door to get it onto stage so all of that led the structure to change and also we didn't want to do a dome by that point it felt too obvious we wanted to do that everything the dome was but we wanted to do it with, you know cut much more of this idea of a, a man that's crash landed on a planet and he's now exploring exploring this universe so we ended up reshaping it and through a lot of kind of referencing from sam and from all of us of like old british movies and old kind of space movies and how they do it we came up with that shape it had a lot more lines in it and um it was in four and originally 
I keep saying the word four because there were four parts to it, but actually we built four and we took four to cheer in and we put it on stage in there in the first rehearsal, not the first rehearsal that you guys would have known about, but the pre-rehearsal that they do without the delegations there. And um, we actually cut, cut one of the pieces because we were like, actually three, three pieces opens up that front area, which means that we could get more um, clean shots of Sam from the front of house cameras and blah, blah, blah. And anyway, yeah, we came up with that. How often is it? You mentioned that you are that you are able to have a chat with the, the Eurovision technical team because of those relationships that you have and, and obviously the relationships that Marvin has as well. How often has it happened where you go to them and say, oh, I'd love to do this or I'd love to do this. And they simply go, oh, you can't do that, Dan. We can't make that happen. Oh, it happened for, um, I think, two of our acts in last year. For Israel, we had a um, the original creative was all about it was about stairs, um, and they get their feedback was like you can do stairs if you want if you want to be part of another five or six countries that are also doing stairs, um, and if you look at the amount of countries that did do stairs, we decided at that point because the love of wanting to be an an individual, we were like if anyone else is doing stairs, we ain't doing stairs, so we cut them at that point and we changed Israel into a much more kind of clean stage graphic interactive number, and then Cyprus. The version of Cyprus that you saw last year was probably our third iteration of a design that developed because of how you can make projection work, how we couldn't do certain things and get certain things in place and whatever. So that went on a journey as well. Um, So, yeah, it happens a lot. Yeah, it's crazy because automatically everyone always thinks, oh, well, that must be how it was always intended to be, but not often the case. And in 2022, of course, we had the difficulties, shall we put it, with the stage itself. How difficult i guess was that for for you and for for people in your position or at that point i guess have you done the work that you can do from my myself and marvin's point of view it wasn't difficult at all because we foresaw that that was going to be a problem and so we just ignored it we ignored the sun we refused to we 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 knew that the we could see that there was going to be a lot of problems with it so we just chose to not rely on it um, and so all of our creatives didn't feature any of that stuff. It was a tricky design because there wasn't any LED product backing the artists. And so when you're looking at someone like Michael's performance from Israel, it would have benefited from a big, iconic look in the background from LED. But we had to, it just forced us to flip our camera angles and start using the floor a lot more. So in many ways, it was just part of the process. And, you know, it, it is what it is. You're given a set of parameters and you work to those parameters. On a previous podcast, we're, we're currently in the midst of a series called The Contest and Me, where we're, we're chatting to um, well-known Eurovision fans, well-known Eurovision personalities, including Steve Holden, of course. And, and me and Steve had a conversation about, we will never forget Sam's very first rehearsal. We were sat in the green room and we saw it for the first time. We saw the structure. We saw everything that you had planned. And we will never forget that moment what was it like for you because i remember you and the rest of the bbc delegation you were sat probably about 10 yards further forward in another one of the pods watching with all the screens and with sam in front what was it like to see it finally there finally on stage finally in Turin, sam there and also knowing that everyone else can see it for the first time uh it was a moment where you come off and you tell yourself don't be so fucking ridiculous the the uk can never do really well that's how it felt. And what I mean by that is it felt so good. It felt so planned. It felt so 
better than we could have even hoped. It felt so magical. And it felt that there was an energy building around Sam and the pro- the whole production that you wanted to dream that we might get to second on the leaderboard. But you never, you just feel like we're British. We're the United Kingdom. How the hell are we going to do that? No one's going to ever vote for us. All those, you know, all those usual things that all the messaging that we were trying to kill throughout our whole campaign, you're just like, really? Could it? You never know. But oh, it was so exciting. I feel really emotional just talking about it, actually, because it was such a, a moment. And all of those moments, the moment I, I've got a memory being in the, the um, going back up to the delegation bubble at that point after that rehearsal. You've come out of the viewing room, you're really psyched up because when Marvin and I get in the viewing room, you've got whatever it is, 20 minutes to just, you know, get every comment in there and all of that stuff. And I just remember coming up and people from other delegations shaking our hands and congratulating us that doesn't very happen very often i'm telling you now and it was like oh okay maybe maybe this is really cool this is good and we're creatives we doubt ourselves we are our whole life is filled with self-doubt and that's why that betters us so you know that's part and parcel of being in the position that we're in but it did feel like an amazing moment it definitely was. Like I say, it's it's a moment that I don't think I'll ever forget because it was it was just such a like you say, almost an emotional moment on that journey of being being part of the the, the UK and, and the Eurovision and that whole journey. And you and you go into that first rehearsal feeling your like your whole soul. It's like no other. Like if we rehearse an MTV performance or a Rips performance, no one sees that until the night. But you know what it's like at Eurovision and everyone sees everything and it felt like you you just know that when you go to Eurovision, your whole soul is going to be bared and you're opening yourself up to so much criticism and everyone's opinions and all that kind of stuff. So you go down there shitting yourself because you're like, oh my God, this could be a disaster. I didn't feel like none of the, you don't never go there feeling like it's going to be a disaster, but that self-doubt always plays up and that makes us better. It makes the adrenaline run and it makes us focus and it makes us get on fire. So it's we need all of that to fuel us. But at the same time, yeah, man, it was amazing. You have got to go, I know, because you have got a lot of other things to do. My last okay. two my last two questions. The first one is, you talked about that emotion there and the feeling that you felt after the first rehearsal. Obviously, the natural place now to go is Saturday night. We've just finished second, and you have been a huge part of that. What is that like? And what was the party afterwards like, Dan? Two things of that. It felt so amazing coming second, knowing that Ukraine had won. I know, you know, we would all dream of first place and that's why you go into a competition, but it never, it never was. What I remember Sam saying to me that morning, he said, if we, you know, who knows what will happen, but I just want Ukraine to win. Um, And when we were waiting for those votes to come in and we were all sat there around the, in the, you know, around the green room table, um, Sam got us together in a huddle and he said, look, it doesn't matter. If we just get a point, we're happy and we just want Ukraine to win. Just celebrate their joy and celebrate us when we get something. And that's all we can ask for. We're here. It doesn't matter. Um, So it's an amazing thing because we were just so free and it was just so wonderful. And when those points do come in, they're kind of like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. It just really, really built up. And then afterwards, you also just it's just, you know. You're buzzing and you're, you're 
I don't know. You, for me, I get to speak to my mum and she's just so proud. That'll do. The party afterwards, I mean, yeah, it was it was just amazing. We, you know, we went to a bar that um Ben from Tap had hired and 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 Parlophone and it was just us. And it was just like, yeah, it was a bit of a kind of proud moment. And 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 we now we know it by that point all the wonder of where you're going to land has gone and we're so used to um as the uk having some hype and then it not kind of registering so it it felt very strange but also wonderful that it was a very different narrative it's nice to know that it wasn't just you know us watching at home or us watching in turin us fans that had that confused emotion of what's this like we've just finished like you know we've just finished so high up in the in the leaderboard the final question then, Dan, is is 2023. How excited are you from a creative point of view, from a, from your role, that Eurovision is is now heading here and the BBC will be hosting it in, in 2023? I think it's brilliant. Um, you know, we came out of there not expecting that at all. Um, and here we are. And I think it's an amazing opportunity, both for the UK, but also for us to host and for something for Ukraine and to bring their party to the rest of the world. And, you know, I just, I think that's a, that's, it's a privilege. So I think it's great. I think it's um, so exciting. And I think it's going to make a lot of people very happy. And I think what a wonderful thing to be a part of. And I'm sure that you'll be a very busy man. I don't know what you'll be doing, but I'm sure you'll be a busy man. Let's see what happens. But, um, you know, whatever happens, I just, I'm you know, it's going to be a, a, an amazing moment for the nation. Dan, thank you so much for taking us through your life with Eurovision, everything you do, especially 2022, and uh, and good luck for the future and your future in Eurovision as well. It's been brilliant to have you on the podcast, so thank you. Been great talking to you, Rob. Thank you so much, mate. This is the Euro Trip. When you aren't listening, you can find us on social media. We're at Eurotrip Podcast, warming you up for the Eurovision Song Contest. Well, a huge thanks to Dan for taking so much time out of his busy calendar, his busy schedule for for sitting down with you, Rob, and giving us such an insight into his world of work. A world of work which I reckon doesn't get talked about nearly as near enough as it should do, because the creative design element of a performance, not just at Eurovision, but any live performance is so, so crucial to how it appears to an audience, isn't it? It's not just the song, it's the visual aspect of it as well. And Dan, as you've just heard, and the rest of his team too, is responsible for some of the most iconic performances over the last six or seven years and some of the biggest props. I promise big props, he certainly delivered. Yeah, and as he said in that chat, it's not about staging a song for the sake of it or a performance for the sake of it either. If a song just needs a spotlight, he'll just give it a spotlight. But as we've said, he does love a big prop as well. And it was great to get him to go through some of the props that without Dan, we would never have seen on the Eurovision stage. And also, oh, can we have a word about everything that Dan said about Sam Ryder and the UK and Eurovision 2022? What a brilliant insight into everything that happened then. And also fascinating just how early Dan became part of that project, how he worked with Sam on the eventual look and feel of everything that we saw on the stage and also that big spaceship or whatever you want to describe it as it was supposed to be bigger 
it was supposed to be bigger than it actually turned out. It was going to be four parts, then it was three parts. I didn't get to ask Dan about the bit when apparently the stage got lost and some of it went oh, to Milan yes. instead of Turin. <laughs> Should have asked him about that, shouldn't I? Oh, honestly, fascinating to find out so much about that. And I think we probably already realised this, didn't we, for for 2022, that the stars just really seemed to align this year with Sam, with Dan, with Lee and Andrew from the BBC. All of their ideas just seemed to align at the perfect time. And Ben, of course, from, from Tap Music. It just seemed to come together and, of course... The BBC, the UK, Sam came away with that impressive result, but clearly it was a huge team effort. Absolutely, a huge team effort. It was great to hear kind of the creative process behind everything that happened there. Dan giving those kind of initial drawings to the BBC and to Sam and the idea that Sam might at some point have been in a dome instead of that spaceship. That was fascinating. And also the thought that Actually, that collaboration with Dan, him coming back into the fold and working with the BBC again after a few years away, started with a conversation in Rotterdam in 2021. Like, all of this stuff, it's long-term thinking, isn't it? It's not just a a fleeting conversation. It it all takes a lot of thinking. There's a lot of thought that goes into all of it, and it's all worth it at the end if it happens like it did. This is a perfect example of when people say, oh, Eurovision is just one day in May. No, People start to think about it a full year in advance. That gives you an idea about the scale of the Eurovision Song Contest. And just quickly a word, I know you chatted about this uh, with Dan, the way he was involved with Greatest Hits uh, back in 2015. So he got to uh, creatively design performances for the likes of Lorene and Emily DeForest he mentioned. I mean, working at the contest every year must be big, but to do it for some of the most iconic performances ever, wow. Yeah. Yeah, you say that, but he also said to me that he just finished on Westlife's tour. So, <laughs> is Westlife's tour bigger than Emily DeForest? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I couldn't possibly say. But Dan and the team at Black Skull Creative, thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast, chatting to us all about everything you do at Eurovision. And I alluded to it at the end of the chat. And Dan didn't tell me anything. So this didn't come from Dan. But I think it's safe to say that Dan will be very busy at Eurovision in 2023. It would only make sense, wouldn't it? With his CV, with his workload this year, I imagine it's only going to be more work, more work and more work for for Dan and the rest of his team. And, And bring it on. If we get more performances like that, sign me up. Absolutely. Well, let us know what you thought about what you have just heard there on the podcast at Eurotrip Podcast, Twitter and Instagram. Hello at EurotripPodcast.com on the email. We would love to hear what you think because you don't often hear people like Dan chatting so openly about their work at Eurovision. So hopefully you enjoyed it. So thanks again to Dan for joining us. Thanks again to you for tuning in. Luckily, because it's a Friday and it's a bonus episode, you don't have to wait seven days for the next one. You've only got to wait five days. That's when we'll be back with a brand new episode of the Eurotrip. It's going to be another edition of The Contest and Me, chatting to another big name from the Eurovision Song Contest, another huge fan. So make sure you tune in for that. So in the meantime, make sure you subscribe, leave us a review and rate us five stars. From me, James, it's goodbye. And from me, Rob, it's goodbye. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Created by infusing Andaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky soft and glowing. Plus, it's clinically proven to improve elasticity and deeply moisturize without feeling greasy. It's safe, clean, vegan skincare. Get 10% off your first order at oseamalibu.com with code GLOW, plus free shipping on orders over $60.